For the season of Advent, we'll take another journey away from the book of Romans, and this Sunday we go to one of the great Advent texts. Turn with me to the ninth chapter of the prophecy of Isaiah. We will begin reading with the second verse, but let me call call your attention to the first word in translation of the first verse, but... But there will be no more gloom for her who live in anguish in earlier times. And then we will commence our reading with the second verse, the ninth chapter, the prophecy of Isaiah. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness, they will be glad in your presence. As with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff of their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as of the battle of Midian, for every boot of the booted warrior and the battle tumult, and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. May God's blessing rest upon this reading of his holy word. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. C.S. Lewis's The Narnia Chronicles centers on the tales and exploits of four children, Peter and Susan and Edmund and the very youngest, Lucy, on an exploration of their uncle's wonderful home, they come across a magic wardrobe. It's filled with fur coats, and Lucy, the youngest, relishes the feel of fur against her skin. So she presses further and further into the wardrobe as the other children go off to explore other places in the home. And then an amazing thing happens. She goes through the wardrobe, and a world opens up before her. It is full of white snow and a lamppost. She has been ushered into the magical, wonderful land of Narnia. Lucy meets a fawn who invites her to his home for tea, a very respectable British thing, Mr. Tumnus in his name. The fawn, Mr. Tumnus, tells Lucy about the land of Narnia, how it wasn't always as it was then, it wasn't always winter, but There was a time when it was perpetual summer and rivers of wine. I don't know if I can say that from a Baptist pulpit, but it's in the the story. Rivers of wine flowed through the land, and it was uh, perpetual dancing and joy and music. But when Lucy first comes into Narnia, it is perpetual winter. Those days of summer are long gone because of the evil reign of the white witch, Mr. Tumnus explains that she claims to be the queen of Narnia, but 
Tumnus makes clear that she is not the rightful ruler of the land. But she has placed Narnia under a spell, under a curse. And so here's the reason for the long introduction. It is to get to the point of Lewis's description of the curse. He said the white witch has made Narnia always winter and never Christmas. Always winter, but never Christmas. That's a dreadful thought, isn't it? Always winter, never Christmas. I've lived most of my life in climes which have had bitter winters, but they were made livable by fires and hearths and winter sports and festivals of light and promises of something else, promises of spring, but most of all, Christmas. Try to imagine a winter with none of those things, always winter, never Christmas. It means cold without warmth. It means white with no hope of color. It means death with no life. Isaiah 9 is probably the most famous, certainly one of the most famous prophetic passages, which in Old Testament terms announce the coming of Christmas. It prophetically promises the coming of Christmas in a way that addresses two issues that we have cared about as long as we have cared about anything, how to face the dark and how to receive gifts. So that's the outline of what I want us to see together in Isaiah 9 this Advent season. Chapter 9 opens talking about a people, we've just heard it and read it, who walk in darkness, who walk in a land which is always winter, but never Christmas. Now, in order to understand where we are in chapter 9, we need to back up to chapter 8. And at the end of that chapter, we read, Distressed and hungry, the Israelites will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look towards the earth. What a state, distressed, fearful, stressed out to the max. What is happening in chapter 8 is the Israelite people are suffering a great famine. They are under great psychological and sociological stress, and they are running all about this way and that. The more they look at the earth, the more their faces are posed downwards, the more they see darkness. Christmas is not a sentimental holiday. Christmas understands that the world is a dark place. Christianity isn't sentimental at all. Every other kind of non-Christian philosophy says something like this, Buck up! Things aren't as bad as you seem. But Christianity is far more realistic than that. Christianity says, take the very worst analysis, the most pessimistic prospect for anything outside of Christ. And that's true. If you have no confidence that what the Bible promises at Christmas really happened, then there's really no way that you should take Christmas as a time for sweet sentiments or ways to chirp sweet thoughts. Christmas itself says you can't do that. Christmas itself 
has no sentimentality about it. Christmas itself says the world is dark. There's no place to be chirpy, happy. We know human life is a dark place, and the only hope there could be in this white world is if God has actually done what he has said he has done in the announcement of the Christmas story. Apart from that, every person who has any intelligence at all and has looked clearly at the world knows there is no hope. That's the beginning of my sermon. Are we suitably depressed? Now, if chapter 8 ends with the Israelites looking at the earth and recognizing that the world is a dark place. Chapter 9 opens with a word I called your attention to. It is sometimes translated, but. It is sometimes translated, however. My favorite translation for it is, nevertheless. Unquestionably, my favorite film of all time is Robert Bolt's A Man for All Seasons. It tells the story of Sir Thomas More, who uh, resists the whims and strategies of Henry VIII's love life because of his uh, Catholic convictions and faith. There are so many high points in the film, but one of my favorite high points comes near the end, which in spite of his silence, More has been uh, condemned for long months and solitary confinement, and is finally condemned to death, even though he's not spoken. But after his condemnation, he surprises the court by rising to speak. His body is wasted and emaciated and almost dead already. But when he is condemned to death for being the king's enemy, he says, and it is uh, Paul Schofield in the film, whose performance I allude to, He says, almost not able to speak, I am the king's true subject, and I pray for him and all the realm. I do none harm. I say none harm. I think none harm. And if this be not enough to keep a man alive, there is in good faith the truth that I long not to live. And then surprising everyone, Schofield and the character of Moore summons up every strength he has and he rises and he says, stunningly, Nevertheless, it is not for the supremacy that you have sought my blood, but because I would not bend to the marriage. I love that word. Nevertheless, that is the announcement of the Christmas message. Despite the fact that there is no hope in this world without Christ, nevertheless, Christ has come. That's the gospel message of Christmas. The world is a dark place. Nevertheless, without Christ, the world has no hope. Nevertheless, The coming of Jesus Christ shows us that no one and nothing anywhere is hopeless. Chapter 9 starts, Nevertheless, there is light in a dark world. 
It erupts into the world. It comes from the outside. It changes everything. It turns the world upside down. The world is a new place because of Christmas. The central event of the Christmas story is that Jesus Christ is given as a gift. If in the first place the Christmas story helps us face the dark, and we've just seen that, the second thing in this text suggests that we are taught how to receive the one gift, the great gift. Jesus Christ doesn't just come into the world. He is given to the world. He is the most distinctive, singular gift of all. I imagine one of the most unique customs of Christmas is that it is the time of gift-giving. There are other occasions where we give gifts to a person. We give gifts at marriages, we give gifts at birthdays, we give gifts at Father's and Mother's Day, but at Christmas season, the distinctive celebration is that everyone gives gifts to everyone. It is a singular sign that the meaning of Christmas is that Jesus Christ has been given to the world as a gift. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus doesn't come into the world, he is given to the world. And we know several things about gifts. The best gifts surprise us. Those of us who have been married for some time... Uh, Maybe it's a little bit little bit harder to surprise your mate. Well, I think I've got one surprise for Stephanie. But we, we sort of give guidance to one another. But the very best gifts, and the gifts to children, the very best gifts of all are those that surprise us. Oh, I couldn't have known that myself. That's just what I wanted. It's better than I could have thought of. You know me. We are given a great gift of, of surprise in gift-giving. Jesus Christ comes into the world by surprise. We weren't looking for him just that way. He came in weakness, not in power. He came at a cross and he turned the world upside down. He crept into our hearts where we least expected it, in a way we could not predict. Jesus comes as a gift, which is a surprise. And then secondly, the fact that Jesus Christ is a gift is a way of saying that the entire world is grace. All that we have and all that we are has been given. We don't serve a wage religion. We serve a gift religion. We serve a grace religion. Jesus uh, has a wonderful illustration in Matthew's gospel about a pearl of great price. There's a uh, there's an expert on gems that knows the incredible worth of a pearl beyond measure. He gives everything he has for it. And knows it's the greatest exchange of his life. The gospel gift is a masterpiece. I read one book once which describes a masterpiece as something which endures through the ages. It will survive wars. It won't be touched. It has a, an aura. It, it lasts. The gospel is a masterpiece. The gospel message has been preached in this spot in this land, in this country, 50 and 100 years ago, and 100 years and 200 years from now, the masterpiece of the gospel will still be shared. It will still be said. It is the great gift. It is the great treasure. Several Christmases ago, Bryce uh, 
had us in our early Christmas Eve service open up a, a present, a box. What is the Lord looking for from us? And there was a mirror he's looking for from us. But in this text, it tells us what, 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 what happens to us when we open the box. What, what do we see inside? What is given to us? And there are four names. We are given a mighty God, a powerful God. That means we have a God who just doesn't intend good things. He just doesn't wish goodwill. He is powerful to accomplish everything that he purposes. We have a prince of peace. I've just back, as many of you know, from Israel, where people greet one another with shalom. It is the end of the Christian life. If grace is the beginning, if we are covered and impelled with grace, if all that we have is a gift, we move towards shalom. God's perfect peace where life is as he is created to to be. He is a wonderful counselor. He can be trusted to carry us and guide us and take us into deep and important places. And he is, the text tells us, an eternal father. No other religion promises that. That kind of intimacy, that kind of closeness. He has come to be our brother, our lover, our guide, our king, our savior, but also our beloved and our eternal father. We serve a God who takes the hand of a woman who has lost her son and says, don't cry. We come to a God who has taken the hand of a dead little girl and says, Talitha, come, honey, stand up. We serve a God who has gone to the cross And has said, I have been forsaken for love of you. We serve a God who has moved heaven and earth. That he might become personal. That he might become intimate. That he might become real. That he might become an eternal father. Living in Holy God, we gather around a text this morning that announces the great gift of Christmas. You surprise us. You surprise us with a life of giftedness and grace. You surprise us with your own holy, mighty presence. Eternal Father, strong to save, may we be yours in this life and in the next. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.